Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. My guest for this episode is Todd Cavallo, the vigneron with his partner Crystal Cornish of Wild Ark Farm in the Hudson Valley of New York. This is a dense, practical, and at times technical interview about being a thoughtful ecological producer of natural wine in the Northeast United States. I was taking notes. Among so many other helpful nuggets in this interview, you're going to get some amazing tips about how to produce a natural piquette from the guy who started the piquette revolution. And there are so many things that I love about this conversation. I love that this conversation started with bees, chickens, deer, eagles, beetles, grubs, composted chicken manure, and gardens. Once we begin to understand that the best wine grows from a diverse and vibrant ecosystem, the more we see that these seemingly tertiary topics are actually central to understanding and producing wine. I love that Todd and Crystal are thinking about not planting more grapes, but rather helping established grape producers switch to organic practices. I love that Todd is extremely thoughtful, not just about what kind of sprays he's using in his vineyards, but who produces those, and how often they must be applied, and what that means for his carbon footprint, and how to spray more effectively. I love Todd's emphasis on using local ingredients, including promoting the use of local materials for fermentation vessels, which actually involved us in a discussion about the American chestnut, which if you haven't heard, this will be a great intro to what has been called the greatest ecological disaster in history. That's just a teaser. If you have any comments or questions about this or any other interview, please email them to info at centraliswine.com. That's info at C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. I'd love to hear from you. And I don't often mention this, but please give this podcast a rating or a review. It would be a big help and a free way for you to support my ability to bring you more great programming. Enjoy. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good morning. I mean, it is, it's morning for me. It's still morning for you. Still morning um, here. Yeah. Uh, where are you? I am in the mid-Hudson Valley of New York, um, about an hour and a half north of the city on the west side of the Hudson River. Um, between Middletown and Newburgh, I always say those are the closest large cities. Got it. Are those cities? Middletown, uh, and towns, cities, bergs, uh, yeah. bergs. Yeah, Newburgh <laughs> is fairly large. They're both pretty, uh, pretty large, and they have a, a, you know, metropolis kind of downtown. So I would call them cities. Okay. And can you describe Wild Ark Farm? And, uh, like yeah. Wh- yeah, I mean, just what it what it looks like. Uh, what 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 the farm is like what's what you got going on there um we are a small farm we're about nine and a half acres um it was a part of a larger agricultural tract of land here that was uh an alfalfa farm for a hundred years um most recently for the last 20 years before we moved here it was a perennial nursery so when we bought the property there was a number of hoop houses uncovered on the property, uh, there were 10 in the front and 12 in the back that were just starting to be overgrown with native uh, flora. So that's where the name Wild Ark actually originally came from. Um, because uh, they I was going to ask, the Ark of the Hoop House? Yeah, exactly. And then Got all it. the native uh, native species kind of taking them over. 
Um, and we have since taken uh, about a dozen of those hoop houses down um, to make room for our little one acre experimental vineyard, uh, which is now planted mostly to hybrids, uh, Itasca, um, Aurora, Aramel, sorry, Itasca, Aramella, um, Arendelle, and then a little bit of La Crescent and a tiny block of Pinot Noir. And um, then behind that, there's a three-quarter acre food forest slash, you know, permaculture orchard um, where we've got fruit and nut trees and a bunch of uh, berry bushes and things that are growing uh, in the understory that we use for herbs and for teas and tinctures and all the other stuff that we wanted to do, but got caught up making wine and cider. Uh, And then also, yeah, we have chickens and bees now. Um, Just, you know, a small flock of chickens, about 30. um, And some of them are just starting to produce. Uh, And then we had one beehive that was our experiment this year to try. And then uh, our neighbors called because they had a swarm in one of their hedges. And Crystal went over like the new bee pro that she is and captured the swarm and we rehomed them in a second hive back by the, uh, the orchard. So we've got a couple beehives. Um, nice. We're not taking honey from them yet uh, because the keeping them alive the first winter in our cooler right. climate is kind of the n- number one challenge. So we let them build their stores of honey and have insulated them well for the winter and hopefully they make it through to spring. And then next year we'll expand and start pulling a little bit of honey for ourselves and for our beverage program. Nice. Yeah. Wendy and I uh, have kept bees here in Los Angeles. Just, you know, we've, we've basically, you know, did the, if you build it, they will come kind of thing, put hives out and wild nice. bees moved in. And then, yeah, same thing. Once you have the suits, you feel empowered to just, you know, help anybody with a swarm of bees in yeah. your neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. And you're just like, yeah, I'll come over and get rid of a swarm of bees for you. I'll um, watch, I'll watch YouTube for a couple minutes and figure it out. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, we've it's it's been great. I mean, we're we're still and and we did the same approach. It's like you know, if you, we sort of we call it rent. You know, just take a tiny bit of honey. You know, once a month during the summer, basically, and then that's it. We make sure that they have plenty. To I mean, here it's not near as big of a concern, I'm sure, as you guys have there. Uh, and I'm curious about that. What for you know for somebody who hasn't you know, kept bees. Are you doing the wild bee thing too? Or did you get a queen originally? So we did, we bought a, a, a nuke, I guess they call it a nucleus for the first hive, um, okay. which is a, a Kenyan top bar hive that, you know, Crystal did all the research and she is the, she's the beekeeper and the chicken master. Um, so it, she knows yeah. much more about them than I do, but you know, right. I've, I've picked up in helping out what I can. Um, but yeah, we did buy a nuke for that one, and then the uh, the other ones are are just wild uh, bees. That wild that we, swarm, we, yeah. We captured the swarm, um, and yeah, we you know if we do expand, we'll probably just be splitting our hives. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, it's 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 another job, and the more jobs we add without adding more people to do them, the less time we have. So, uh, yep. <laughs> I don't know how much we're going to expand, you know, the bee and the chicken um, programs, but yeah. So far, but it do, we're, it, we're well fed. It does feel like it adds something, uh, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, we, I'm, you I should know, ask that. Yeah, we. I, I would say, you know, the the, um, you know, we used to we used to say that we're a biodynamic farm, and we still do a number of the biodynamic preparations. Um, you know, mostly the horsetail tea and uh, the silica sprays because those are drying and help us with our mildew problems. 
Um, but I think the bigger picture of what I consider biodynamics to be is that no input farm kind of thing. And that's the, the goal for us um, with the chickens besides feeding ourselves is that we're, you know, we're doing the deep litter composting method um, with, uh, with the coop. And so we're going to be able to have a really good source of uh, chicken manure uh, for our compost piles that we then use to spread out on our garden beds. And, you know, when yeah. we did our testing in our soil for the vineyard and orchard originally, they were a bit low in uh, organic matter and nitrogen. So we, we spread some chicken manure out on there that we got from another local farm in the early years, but now we'll be able to use ours for all of our soil amendment purposes. Um, so that's a big, bigger picture reason that we're yeah. doing it as well. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we, the idea was eventually to fully free range them in the orchard and the vineyard. And we free ranged the first part of the flock this year for uh, a couple months in the summer. And we had a lot of fox attacks. So, oh, sure. Um, yeah. when, you, when you've got a small flock and you lose one or two birds to foxes or hawks, which is the other problem around here. Um, and actually, we've seen bald eagles all season now, which, you know, I grew up in New York, <laughs> they, never having seen one. And I saw maybe a half dozen this summer. Um, yeah. They heard, yeah. they heard from the hawks and the foxes. Yeah. Yeah. Free Good eating yeah. at wild arc farm. That's the same yeah. <laughs> joke we made about the deer the first year. We didn't see a bunch of deer. <laughs> then we planted a garden and the next year, literally a family of 12 deer like lived in our yard for the whole season. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you do about that? I mean, this is a real concern. I mean, because, you know, farmers everywhere have to deal with this, whether it's whether you've got chickens or grapes or, you know, lettuce. Um, yeah, I mean, the this. you know, the 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 permaculture ideal or the, you know, living in communion with nature ideal is you plant enough that the local fauna have a bit to snack on and you can still harvest for your family and and your community. Um, unfortunately, in the way that development has occurred, uh, especially where we are, we're in what used to be, you know, thousands of acres of, um, of farmland. And now it's a bunch of smaller plots that are, um, you know, starting to fill up with suburban homes and towns nearby. And so there's not, you know, a thousand acres of corn for deer to nibble on its neighbors and then they come to our house and find the gardens and start to eat them. So uh, unfortunately, that means we had to fence in our orchard and vineyard because they were just yeah. destroying the new shoots and all the baby vines, and they then don't have enough uh, uh, resources to make it through the winter. So we've got three right. acres in the back that's fenced off that keep the deer out, um, and then we kind of try not to worry about the rest. We've got a family of rabbits that lives here, and we let them sneak into the hoop house and get strawberries and carrots and whatever else they want to eat. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we did have to take steps for the, for the, uh, the deer cause it was too much. Yeah. That, that's definitely what I've heard in that it is, it is, a, I mean, if you, if you lived in a entirely, like you said, natural ecosystem, things might be different, but it does seem like the reality is the, the fences are the only way to go. Yeah. And then with chickens, did, so are they, they can only be, ranging around while you're shepherding them i'm imagining yeah so if we're outside and we're working um we we kind of let them go um we do have a pretty large like 2000 uh square foot run for the the i think there's only 17 that are outside because we still got another 10 in the basement uh that are baby chicks or well they're oh, like nice. a, about a month old now but they'll be living with us until march when we can finally put them back out um yeah 
but yeah, we've got we've got enough space for them, and it's uh, it's an electrified fence that keeps the foxes out, but they actually can very readily get out of it, um, and they they do. We have a, a couple girls that are a little bit more adventurous, so every morning we see strawberry or uh, or rose petal out in the yard just looking for grubs um with 17 you know which ones they are huh yeah we made the mistake of naming them we have a four-year-old and so she loves coming (laughs) up with the fun names for them yeah are are they different breeds that they're distinctive yeah yeah we have uh groups of two uh or three uh of most of the different breeds yeah yeah we you know we have pretty show birds with funny leg feathers and easter eggers and blue eggers great yeah she can, yeah. she can tell them all apart. Yeah, we have like five reds, and Wendy has named them all according to, because um, Wendy's a librarian, so they're all named according to female authors like Eudora Welty and Octavia Butler and Flannery O'Connor. Amazing. And uh, I have no idea which one is which. <laughs> Just... <laughs> I can tell, I mean, I know the, the groups, so I'll say, you know, that's, yeah. that's either Bluey or Bingo. Those are the ones right. that have <laughs> favorite TV characters or... The rest of them are mostly food: strawberry, marshmallow, bagel, leche flan. Oh, nice. Okay, I thought you were gonna say like fricassee. You know, no, whatever. no, non <laughs> non chicken foods. Yeah, got that's, it. That's nugget. That's chicken wing. That's <laughs> right. Buffalo. Um, so, did they? In the vineyard, uh, because this is definitely of interest to me, because I do the integration of animals and birds and all kind of fauna in the vineyard is, a, I think, a really important thing. But chickens, as I'm sure you found out, will turn soil, you know, as quick as a rototiller if you leave them in a small area long enough. Yeah, they're, um, cur- they're currently turning our um, outdoor gardens. Yes, there you go. <laughs> and how, so in the vineyard, did they when you had them in there, were they doing too much damage? Were they jumping up and, you know, eating the leaves? Cause you know, they love the green. So we haven't, we haven't put them in the vineyard here yet. Um, <clears throat> okay. Be- okay. Because there were, uh, there was enough room elsewhere to kind of start them. And we actually, the vineyard is pretty far from the house. It's all the way on the opposite side of a long stretch of property. And uh, you know, crystal ferments their feed and so has to bring a bucket of uh, heavy wet feed out every day. And so we've kept them closer to the house uh, for the time being. Um, Got it. But uh, the the other vineyard that we kind of co-manage up in uh, Valley Falls, New York, that's where we got the idea originally because the old owner um, was this uh, Joe Messina. He was kind of a outsider, older Italian guy who was a chef and grew organic vegetables before he had a winery. Um, but when we found him and he was kind of transitioning away from from growing and winemaking, he was already like 80% of to where we wanted to be with growing. He was never irrigating, uh, never spraying pesticides or fertilizers. He just basically used chickens for both of those things, for pest control with the yeah. Japanese beetles and grubs, which were the biggest um, insect problem that we have here in the Northeast, and then yeah. their natural fertilizer. Um, and he just basically free-ranged a small flock through the three different blocks in the fall every year. Um, but he always waited till post harvest to start putting them out. Um, so that was going to be our plan. So now we're going to probably start moving as all the leaves have dropped. We'll move them out there. Yeah. It's such a great idea. Yeah. I know the, with the beetles, I mean, it's the larva live in the right under the surface there in the, in the sort of debris, the, the organic debris, um, and the chickens are perfect. I mean, yeah, yeah, I I just put it out there as termites too. So if, you know, you 
their great oh, own yeah. barns. They eat the termite eggs and, you know, termite right. termites themselves and everything. Great. Um, good, good pest control for people as well as plants. <laughs> yeah. Well, we might also add some guinea fowl because we have ticks here too. And we hear that the uh, guinea fowl yeah. do better with That's tick right. control. Wonderful. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, well, great. And so you guys uh, are not originally farmers, uh, not not from farming no, family. Not from really. farming stock, no. Um, we grew up in central New York, uh, outside of Syracuse. Um, I had farm friends growing up because I lived, you know, in the school district that had most of the farming areas in it. And, you know, they were the kind of kids who were like not into being farmers or from a farm family for the most part. Um, and so when I was leaving the city, so we lived in the city, both of us for, uh, almost 18 years, um, at basically college and afterwards before we decided to come back, uh, upstate. And when I was coming up here and talking to my friends who grew up in farm families, they were like, no, don't do it. Don't farm. You don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we had no experience with agriculture, um, we did have, you know, we grew tomatoes and peppers and herbs and hops on our fire escape for a few years. And we made kombucha and cider and homebrewed beer in our Brooklyn apartment, as Brooklynites are wont to do. Um, <laughs> so we had, you know, that little kind of experience in what we were coming up here to do. But it was more of a like, let's start this and, you know, maybe in 10 years we'll retire and be winemakers. And I had more of a plan to keep my job and commute to the city for the time being but that didn't work out no why would you find um it, you know it wasn't it wasn't a bad life you know i only went in three days a week and the commute's a couple hours so i would sleep on the train on the way there and you know work on the way home um but <laughs> very quickly we started making wine and very quickly we were able to sell it because we were fortunate enough to have a number of connections in the food and beverage world in new york um so that we could get our wine seen early on. And when it started kind of working and I started focusing on it, my, uh, my old job kind of was like, so I think you're more interested in winemaking than working, so why don't you go do that? And so they nicely <laughs> asked me to, uh, to leave. Um, so they, they, they hastened my five-year plan or 10-year plan, I guess, um, which which is fine, you know. We we're we're still surviving. We're not broke yet. We're yeah. still paying the mortgage on the farm. So sounds familiar. Yeah, I hear yeah. you. Um, well, one of the things I want to ask the folks who warned you against being farmers or having a farm or what you know whatever it was in that conversation. How much of that do you think came from their knowledge of conventional farming and its the sort of you know sort of vicious cycle of you know, paying for inputs and equipment that you must take debt on to to be able to pay for and then, you know, having commodity type farming that really can't pay for the inputs that you have to put into it. And, and then you're just constantly, you know, living hand to mouth or debt, you know, payment to debt payment versus the realities of being a farmer, regardless of what kind of farming it is. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm sure that was a part of it. Um you know that my my one friend who I'm thinking of specifically, they they were a smaller family farm. Uh, I don't think they were you know doing any organic um, production or anything, but they were mostly growing flowers in addition to vegetables. So I think that's a different um, kind of market and input and output uh, anyway. But uh, right. I, I, a lot of it, I think, was um, 
they didn't think of me as someone who could or wanted to do a large amount of manual labor, <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> I lived in the city and had a desk job for 10, 15 years. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. You know, but I was also, you know, into competitive exercising at one point. So I, I, I can I can move my body. I can, you know, figure out how to lift heavy things. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it was more that just like you are going to farm. Oh, OK, sure. Oh, I see. It was specific to you. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. OK. Are there any realities uh, of, of doing what you're doing that that you would say are a cautionary tale to anybody who's thinking about it? Like, are, um, you know, yeah, if, I mean, we've we've made all the mistakes that we can make uh, and still come through it. OK, I think um, I, I would say definitely uh, the, the first mistake we made is um, looking for a house with a little bit of land and thinking everything would be fine on both sides, whereas we ended up just making compromises on both sides. I, you know, I, right. I think we, we, we bought a house that's, you know, it's newer construction, oh. but it's oh. it's it's not it's not the old house oh. that's got good bones. You know, it's twenty years right. old, so they weren't necessarily doing everything right. Um, and got at twenty it. years, that's when everything starts to fail too. So you know, right. we've had air conditioner failures, appliance failures, leaks, uh, septic system needed to be redug completely. Um, oh. So yeah. I would say, like, if you know, if you can find some la land to work first and find a, another living situation that's either a rental or something like that, or, you know, find a house and then find some, some land to lease uh, to start, maybe that's a better bet. Um, but yeah, also in general, it is, it's, it is a matter of taking on debt, you know, and also how, how green is it to go from living in a city and using public transport every day of your life to suddenly having two vehicles, a diesel tractor, a lawnmower, um, <laughs> Now a forklift, thankfully, because I couldn't be making the amount oh, wow. of money I'm making without it. Um, but yeah, every year it's like we need a new vehicle and that we just are, you know, finishing paying off our tractor from four years ago and the mower should be done soon. But um, we definitely had to invest a lot into that infrastructure um, up yeah. front that we didn't really plan for. Um, and then, yeah, just the amount of work that it is and the the kind of position you have to be in. Um, to hire someone to help you is, you know, especially if you want to pay them a living wage, it's hard to do when you're like, well, I could just work an extra couple hours every day and get it done. <laughs> and then you right. realize, especially during harvest time, you're working, working or on the road because I drive to the Finger Lakes in Long Island um, to pick up some of our fruit also. Yeah. I, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. It just becomes a, uh, you know, an, an 80 hour week before you know it. Um, and yeah, sure. Driving isn't, really hard work but when you're on the road for 12 hours and in between is loading two tons of fruit by hand into bins from lugs then it's a full day you yeah feel it, you feel it the <laughs> next morning yeah there i yeah i'm definitely i i've been thinking long and hard about that i'd be curious about your thoughts about that i, I i'm sure your ideal would be to produce all of your own grapes I, I don't i don't maybe i'm not sure do you feel like that's something you want to head to uh i would love to be able to do that um but i also don't necessarily want to plant more vineyards um i think we've shifted kind of from that like let's 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 plant and grow and plant and grow um idea to well i mean if we're going to tear up more native grassland in our backyard to plant a vineyard is that really a net positive for the 
local environment and the environment in general to plant more monocrops? Um, or mm-hmm. would it be better just to have our little experimental acre? It's very densely planted, so we will be able to pull four to six tons off of it down the road and then work with the other growers that we've made relationships with to get them, you know, A, off herbicide, which is always our first step. And and I think New York is finally starting to move in that direction uh, across the board. And then B, towards the organic fungicides that we're finding uh, to be uh, efficacious, at least for hybrids, um, less so for the vinifera. But yeah, making, making those moves so that we're kind of shifting the needle on farming towards the good where it already exists rather than, you know, putting, adding new farming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That I, I right there with you. I I love that. I wonder what are some of those, uh, let's talk about those fungicides and what are the, uh, what are the things you can say to a farmer who user uses herbicide? What's, what's the alternative there where you guys have so much rain and so much, you know, potential weed growth or understory growth in a vineyard? Um, I mean, I think the the uh, the herbicide thing um, was just you know it was the prevailing wisdom here uh, on the East Coast where kind of um, Cornell and their ag program is the king. It's just you can't have competition to grow good grapes. And I think mm-hmm. in general that idea is starting to fall by the wayside. Um, mm-hmm. And you know we were super lucky to find uh, Joe Messina, who I mentioned um, up at Amarici Vineyards now now. Uh, KFF Vineyard, who had just never, he had never done it. He established his vines and just basically, you know, mowed under the vines for 20 years. And we were able to take that on and kind of continue that while moving him to the, to the organic fungicides. Um, But what we do is, you know, we, it's a lot easier with people who are growing um, hybrids, obviously, because they're less susceptible. But we say, maybe can you, you know, in the middle of the season, switch to this rotation, which is, you know, we'll do, we'll still do copper sulfur, but, you know, here on our own vineyard and the ones that we help manage, we're spraying, I think, 5% of the maximum per year um, copper that you can spray to still be considered organic. Um, Mm. So we're keeping those numbers down and doing soil tests every other year to make sure we've got no accumulation. Um, We are using either uh, Serenade or Cease, um, which is a bioantifungal. It's a Bacillus subtilis uh, strain. I think it's QST73. Unfortunately, it is patented by Bayer Monsanto. And so if you're buying Serenade, you're paying them directly in their pockets. And if you're buying Cease, which is made by uh, another company, it's still licensed from Bayer, so you're still getting money to them somehow. So we're looking mm-hmm. for other solutions uh, on that on that bio side um, that aren't padding the pockets of the people that we don't want to work with. Um, yeah. And yeah. there, are, you know, there are a few new strains being tried out. Not a lot of them are tested and labeled for black rot and downy mildew, which are the big problems that we have here. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, but then there are the things like regalia and lifeguard, which are just, uh, internal antagonists, which kickstart the plant's own defenses. So using those in combination with the other things helps the plants be stronger themselves. Uh, and then, like I mentioned, the, um, horsetail tea and the silica sprays are just, you know, drying. And after a rain, you put those on along with any of the other antifungals and it helps them be a little more. Uh, efficacious so that's that's that what you yeah 
That well, that I actually learned from uh, from Deirdre uh, at La Garagista very early on. That that's how she put out her sprays and how she used the biodynamic preps along with uh, the other antifungals that she was using. Um, nice. And th- then there are the things that are the sanitizers, um, like you can use uh, potassium bicarbonate, which is sold commercially as a bunch of different things. Carbonator is the one that we've used in the past, um, which just makes the plant surface inhospitable to mildew growth by changing the pH. Uh, and then in the other direction, there are the uh, acid and peroxide based things like oxidate, which is parasitic acid. And I think hydrogen peroxide, um, which mm-hmm. is basically just, it's a, it's not a preventative. It's just a curative. It'll kill the things, the spores that are on there and the mildew that's mm-hmm. currently in contact with them. But none of that stuff lasts. None of that stuff sticks on through a rain very well. Um, so yeah, you had uh, some serious rain this figuring out what works. Right. And, and you had some serious rain this summer. What was that like? Yeah, that was rough. Um, basically nonstop, uh, five days a week, basically for, for most of the midsummer season. So that's, you know, in my case, that's getting out and spraying every two to three days, which I understand for someone with one acre in their backyard is feasible. Um, you know, talking to growers that are spraying 20 to 40 to 80 acres, they're not going to be able to do that uh, as often. Plus, if you're looking at the bigger picture uh, of the, um, the impact on the environment, is it really better to be burning a bunch of diesel fuel in a tractor to get your sprays out over and over and over again, rather than put something out that may be less great environmentally um, but you put out once and it sticks around for two to three weeks, uh, even in the rain, like those mm. s- systemics. So, right. I mean, that's all to say, like, I'm, I'm trying to look at the bigger picture of these things, you know, the same argument yeah. could be made for the weed control. If I'm doing mechanical weed control every two weeks and I'm again, running a tractor through the divines to do that, is that better for the environment, bigger picture than strip spraying herbicide once or twice a season? Um, right. Currently, I still lean in the direction that it is because I have a tiny tractor that barely uses any fuel. So I'm not like burning, you know, hundreds of gallons of diesel a year or maybe going through five gallons a month. Um, and sure, I would love to get uh, a, an electric tractor or something that would help like- mitigate that somewhat. But unfortunately, they're on the top end of the price range right now, the ones that are available in the U.S. So that's going to be a while down the road. Uh, is there, are there other options besides the Monarch? I know I'm aware of the Monarch. That's the only one that I know of in the U S I had found one that was making waves in Europe. Uh, I forget the name of it. Um, but when I did look a few years back, um, but yeah, that's the only one that I know of so far. Um, although they're doing, there's the, uh, there's some new studies being done with UV light application for mildew control. And there are some automated, um, robot applicators of those that aren't exactly tractors but that would basically go out and drive the rows at night um by themselves yeah would be amazing very exciting the things that i've heard about that i actually can considering doing a a whole podcast about that because it does sound i mean it's so eliminating sprays of any kind biological or or chemical and it sounds extremely effective and the studies have been there's no no detrimental effects to the wine quality or the grapes at all like they don't you know they're just not seeing any 
degradation to the to the vines and yeah. and yeah, just, it just sounds just have to make sure the applicators have the proper PPE again because that's the other that's the other part of uh, of organics that people don't talk about as much is that thinking of the health of the the operators and the the workers. Um, I mean, get a my, real bad sunburn, basically. Yeah, right. That. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just and also because to... it's at night, your quality of life is going to suffer because you're like, you know, right. that night work is just it is a little weird. I always think about that when we're like harvesting you know grapes at 2 a.m uh, yeah. to avoid the heat in california it's like yeah, well we don't we don't somebody's life that. sucks that night you know yeah the only yeah the only night work i've had to do thus far is um we will occasionally do some burn barrels uh in the early spring when we get a late frost um and you know that's only because i have of the 75 or so fruit and nut trees that we have planted everything back there is um Either, either standard or semi-standard sized. So like all our apples are on 111 rootstock. Everything's eventually going to be a huge 20, 25 foot tree. Um, but that also mm. means that they don't pr- flower and produce for the first five to seven years. So mm. as we're about five years, six years in now, and things are starting to flower in the spring, when like, for example, the apricots or the peaches that flower early uh, flower for the first time, and then we get a a freeze i'm like no way i'm putting a burn barrel underneath that one tree i'm saving these fruits (laughs) i'm gonna get a harvest this year so um so we i do occasionally get out there you know two to four a.m and burn some some of our firewood is and are you i I know it's not a huge uh piece of land but are you on a slope or is it pretty flat uh it's pretty flat uh we did put the vineyard in the most uh sloped area um it's like five to ten degrees though super subtle uh southern facing slope um but then we also did the non-standard thing of planting almost uh exactly east to west because i'm trying to get as much airflow through the rows as we can and all the winds here are prevailing westerlies so oh interesting trying, trying to not basically block all the wind from the the further east rows by letting it get in there a little bit and some stuff around right makes sense yeah that's interesting but you you frost could be a pretty serious concern for the rest of the or even for that with that you know gradual of a slope you, you yeah we don't we don't concerned. have great cold drainage here for sure right um, yeah actually so i um we planted all vinifera at first and that was in 2018 and then the fall into winter of 2018 to 2019 was just basically the worst season you could have for new vine establishment here in the Hudson oh. Valley. Um, it was another rain, uh, concentrated rain season, but it was all in the fall. Um, so there was just basically standing water, wet feet um, all the way uh, into the well. first frost. And then there was an early freeze um, in, in, I think, uh, October that year. And then there was uh, polar vortex in January. So three days of super sustained low temperatures and then a late frost in May. And so we lost like 80% of our vinifera plantings to winter kill. Um, meanwhile, a friend of ours who planted the same vine stock um, about five minutes up the road, but is like at the crest of an amazingly sloping hill that goes down to a, a water um, source, like a, a stream, uh, kept almost all of his alive because he had better cold drainage. So uh, that's one of the things we learned. Um, yep. <laughs> Would have been nice. Um, but then, yeah, even the other uh, the other vineyards nearby, like Whitecliff, who has 20-year-old vines there, they all died back to the ground, but they had enough uh, roots system and 
uh, carbohydrate res- reserves to send a new shoot up and train it, but they had no fruit there for two seasons after that. So those those winters are are, are what's really difficult here for the vinifera stuff. Um, it turns the season into a a twelve month season where you actually have to consider what happens over winter as part of the growing yeah. season. Yeah. Well, let me let me dig into some of the things that you've just said. So just going back, if you're driving a tractor through the vineyard when it's wet, which I'm sure it is, you know, if you're getting rain whatever, you know, 20 out of 30 days, uh, is compaction a concern? Uh, it, it is, I mean, less so because, uh, like I said, we have, our, our tractor is basically like a half step up from a, a lawn tractor. It's, it's Got not it. very heavy. Um, and, uh, the, the way that we run it in the vineyard, I can kind of move it to one side or the other so that when we then do hilling up, or if we do the, um, the fork to to break up the soil for weed control i can kind of get into the old uh tire tracks and and loosen them up a bit i think maybe down the road we will have to um run a ripper through there every once in a while uh, but we haven't done Uh that since we planted um did you do a traditional uh sort of vineyard prep where you you ripped the soil graded it so we did, we ended up, uh, we planted a bunch of stuff by hand the first year in 2017. Um, uh-huh. not a bunch, but uh, you know, like 200 vines. As much as you could. Um, right. yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the next year we actually hired a vineyard planting, uh, company up here on the East coast that, that they basically do most of the machine planting on the whole East coast. And for that, it, it needed to be completely prepped. So we, we ripped and, and tilled it, um, then, and that's, you know, something I probably wouldn't. Uh, do again because uh another of the differences between our planting and our friend's planting is that he hand planted everything and didn't trim the roots uh from the nursery whereas we had to trim the roots back to basically about six inches so that the machine planter would work with them Uh, Uh, so that's another thing that we learned is that maybe leaving as much of the root intact as you can so we did what did you notice uh i just i mean i don't know um but just in, you know, in digging up his vines and ours after a year, we each tested one, you know, his, you, you, you hear that when you plant longer roots like that, most of them will die back and they'll grow back from further up, uh, the, the root system, but his roots all had still 18 plus inches down and ours were, you know, not much past the six inches we trimmed them to. Oh, um, well. So that's one of the, that was one of the thoughts that, you know, the early freeze um, that froze the top soil, the top, you know, six, eight inches of soil, if that's where all our roots were and they were suddenly choked off before they had hardened off for the winter and his went down below that frost line and were able to kind of keep things going uh, after that early freeze, that's one of the thoughts that we had that might have kept the the difference. You know, right. and we had, we had, you know, the guys from Cornell come up here and walk the vineyards with us and walk his and they're like, I don't know, you just had bad luck. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're not sure that a lot or, of this is just conjecture uh, on my yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you, right. you, you point to the differences and they all kind yeah. of add, add up to, okay, it's got to be, it's got to be one of those things. Well, it, it brings up the question, uh, and this kind of makes me go back to, you, you've mentioned soil tests a couple of times. Do you, can you have a, do you have a recommendation for a a place that you send your soil to? Uh, we send ours to Cornell just because they have a soil okay. lab there that, uh, that gives us good deals as, as New York ag people. Um, and they, you know, they have, a you can, all the tests you can do. Um, so, you know, originally right. we just did give us the general rundown of, of, you know, what the medium is, what the growing conditions look like. And then now that we're again, testing for copper every couple of years, we're adding some copper and other heavy metal tests to those just to see, 
Um, right. Yeah. But yeah, we get books, and it's it's weird because there isn't a even in this area, there's not a very singular soil type that you can point to because most of everything from the Finger Lakes south is glacial till, um, and so you've got deposits from basically from the you know the North Pole all the way down through Canada, um, just <laughs> dropping off. We dug some stuff up here and dropped it off in your in your lap. Uh, so right. we, we do have mostly mostly granite here, and then we're just south of the Shawangunk Ridge, which is a big white like quartz rock face, uh, like the mm. you know like the white cliffs of Dover, but quartz instead of chalk, I guess. Um, right. And so for the most part, I would say we're on decomposed granite. Um, but then we mm. have you know in the front of the vineyard we have really kind of dense red clay uh, twelve inches down, and in the back it's a little bit sandier. It's very weird. There's no huh. um, consistency. Um, but you, you know, do you have any like alluvial soils from the Hudson or are you far enough away from, we're the far, river we're far it's... enough away. Yeah. We're about 30 minutes from the river. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Right on. Um, the other thing was you mentioned sort of learning from, uh, La Garage East. Uh, what, what did that entail? Did like, were you friends with her? Was she, were you, did you go do a stage up there? What was no, the... um, you know, we were uh, acquaintances early on. And then I, when I was just getting started here, I went to an event at um, Wasail in the city that our, our friend Dan Pucci um, put on with uh, Deirdre uh, and Caleb were both there, I think. And then um, just, you know, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to make some wine. Can I ask you some questions? And then, uh, you know, I got my questions answered and then we, um, corresponded a little bit after that. Um, and then actually Derek Trowbridge was also there from old world winery. Uh, and so he was an awesome resource to kind of bounce some ideas off of early on. Um, and then I had, you know, people here making wine in New York that I could ask questions to. We, we crushed our first vintage in, uh, 2016 with Andrew and Jen up at Eminence Road Farm Winery. Um, and he was very receptive to all my first season questions. Um, and then, uh, I think around the second vintage was when I met Zach, uh, Klug from Lytton, formerly of Lytton Buffel, uh, in Western New York. And he had gone to school for winemaking and he had made wine commercially for some bigger people and cider also for a couple of years. And so he was someone who had the kind of, uh, book learning side of winemaking, um, <laughs> but also was doing what, what I wanted to do, which was making wine with as little intervention as possible. He may be more dogmatically than me. Um, but yeah, he was a great resource too. Um, and then it's like, I think we actually connected because, you know, we followed each other on Instagram and he saw that I had the same, like, you know, $200, uh, toe behind sprayer that I was spraying from my golf cart at the time. So we commiserated <laughs> on not being able to afford real machinery. Um, is that what you're still using? No, I actually this- finally last year, last, uh, the beginning of last season got a, a Jack toe air blast sprayer. Um, which I had nice. been looking for forever, couldn't afford the, the the real deal. So I was trying to find a used one and then found this company. I think they were up in Minnesota who had bought one and couldn't sell it locally. So it sat on their lot unused for two years and basically sold it to me at, as new for half price, which was amazing. Nice. That's fantastic. Um, good, good to know. The Jack Toe. All yeah. right. Air Blast. Um, well, 
I mean, you're a Brooklynite, so the natural wine thing makes sense. Um, just to, yeah. <laughs> to totally give you a little shit, but um, <laughs> it's totally, uh, but... totally accepted. I, I get it. And I, you know, when we when we started this journey, I was kind of thinking like, you know, the they always say the Loire Valley has been filling the cafes of Paris with, um, you know been de soif or natural wines whatever you want to call yeah. them for a hundred years like why isn't the closest wine growing region to new york city which is ostensibly the largest natural wine consuming city in the world doing that and so that was the right. idea originally is like all right we'll we'll move up there we'll farm we'll do some you know fruits and vegetables we'll do eggs and chickens the idea was to have a diversified farm and also try making some wine and cider um, as a part of that um but turns out that other people had the same idea that I did that people should be making natural wine up there so as soon as you know people heard that's what we were doing it was like oh let me try it okay let me buy some um, <laughs> did so did your did your do your values around the kind of farming that you're trying to do did that come after sort of being infatuated with these beverages or the foods that you liked like what what was the order of occurrence in your life did you have a did you have a aha moment when you're like you know good agriculture matters and well uh Cri crystal we and i were both vegan for uh 10 or 12 years growing up and so the the thinking about food maybe started there um in a, yeah. in a different way um but then you know when I did start eating meat or when we both started eating meat, it was, you know, okay, well, we're going to do this, but we're only going to do it this way. We're going to eat meat that's raised this way. We're not eating fast food. We're not eating, you know, I mean, we're very privileged to be able to make those choices for ourselves um, and to, you know, only eat organic produce whenever we can. Um, and so, yeah, we were eating organically before we were drinking natural wine. Um, and I think it's interesting that before we were really into wine or knew about it or knew what natural wine was or that it was a thing, we were going into wine shops, um, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, asking for biodynamic wines because, you know, we knew what biodynamics was and Crystal was into, you know, the witchy side of it. Um, and so then once we got more into wine and learning more about the kinds of wine that we liked, we were like, oh, this is like a whole thing with organic and biodynamic growers making wine in this certain way. Um, so I think it kind of all uh, all came together from those disparate kind of on entry points. Got it. Well, you, you also. All right. Let's, let's how, how did Piquette come into your life? You, you have on your Instagram that you started the Piquette Revolution. Yes. Talk about that. Let's see. Uh, how did that, that happen? That's a, that's a little cheeky. Um, just, just, you know. Um, <laughs> you invented piquettes, it. right? Right. I went back in time, uh, 2,000 <laughs> years. Um, so the, 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 the idea for piquette um, existed, obviously, long before we started making it. And our inclination toward trying it was uh, our friend Tristan Guild, who at the time was working at Kingston Wine Co., He's uh, he's an idea man and he's always reading these old books about um, wine and spirits. And and he brought this book um, called The Red and the White, A History of uh, Wine in 19th Century England and or sorry, France and Italy. And uh, he's like, oh, check this out. They talk about this thing, Piquette, in this chapter. Um, you guys ever think about making that? And I had thought about making it because I had actually the first year 2016 done a second wash of all the grapes and had the piquette sitting in barrels until i eventually distilled it 
Um, and I had also made uh, uh, Ciderkin, which is the cider version of Piquette that year. Um, but neither of them were kind of really commercially viable because they both were a little too funky and ended up better off the still than as a standalone product. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, I was like, you know what? You're right. We should try to make this work the next year. And so uh, we we did a second wash of all of our pomace and again, just kept it in barrels or tanks um, over the winter. Uh, and then in the spring, we bottled it in a dozen different test bottlings with different amounts of tirage. We use local wildflower honey um, as our kind of tirage for bottle conditioning. So we did, you know, eight, 10, 12 grams per liter to see how it carbonated best. And then uh, we added back percentages of the press wine to it to, to give it a little bit more body and flavor and bump the alcohol up closer to 7%, which was both to make it taste better, but also because 7% is the magic percentage where you can still sell it as wine. Um, mm. and, and so, yeah, we ended up at 15% of the press wine added back and we tested all the bottles. And when we figured out the 15% and the 12 grams per liter was what we liked, we bottled the whole run of everything that season that way and just decided to like bring it to raw and pour it for people and see if anyone liked it. And I mean, enough people liked it and bought it that we made more the next year. And then other winemakers started coming to us saying, Hey, I'm going to try this. And we're like, yeah, go for it. We don't, you know, we don't have any ownership over Piquette at all. We were just the first <laughs> ones uh, wild enough to try it. All right. How, I mean, is it possible to make a Piquette in a zero zero style? I mean, you're, you're adding a bunch of water, which has no acid and no protection to it. You're lowering the alcohol. Yeah, you're not. It is, you have to add acid and sulfites, I imagine. We actually don't, um, and okay. that made for some some funk the first few vintages until we kind of figured out um, our process a little bit better. Um, okay. So yeah, the, that first year, that one of the piquettes that we made, a Riesling piquette, actually uh, we did not bottle in the spring because it smelled and tasted like vomit. Um, yeah. but we, we left it in the, in the back of the winery, uh, over the summer. And then I was about to dump the barrel in the fall to make room for, for harvest. And it smelled like the most delicious pineapple soda I'd ever smelled. And, you know, come to find out that butyric acid is a byproduct of some lactic acid bacterial activity. And that's the acid that's in your bile. And that's why it smells and tastes like vomit. But in the process Ooh. of ethanol, that'll reduce to, uh, I think it's ethyl butyrate or ethyl isobutyrate. I don't remember. Either one of those things is basically like artificial pineapple flavoring. Um, so <laughs> that's one of the things I learned with this low intervention winemaking stuff is that some things, if given enough time, uh, will, if not write themselves, at least make a more interesting compound than um, the one that's left behind. Uh, and that's that's one of the things that I learned actually about mouse from uh, from the brewing right. community is that um, I think it's uh, ATHP is like a hundred times more flavor active than ETHP, and there's a reduction pathway whereby, in the presence of Britannomyces, it'll reduce from ATHP to ETHP. So if you've got a mousy wine that's been bottled unfiltered and still has any Britannomyces in solution. If you leave it long enough, that um, mouse will drop below perceptible threshold because it's going to be 100 times less flavor active. Um, so that the, the timing. Well, this, is, 
thing is that is is one of the big things with natural wine and trying to release things when they're ready is is harder for a, a small winery starting up but it's getting easier for us um, yeah patience is i think hard for everybody financially and just in in any way yeah i mean patience is definitely uh one of your biggest assets, I think, as yeah. a winemaker, one of the hardest things to have. For sure. But um, that, that was a big tangent away from Piquet. We can get back on that. Um, no, no. I, I think it's all relevant. I think I think this is a great tangent. I, I mean, yeah. just, to, you know, it's one of those things where sulfates, in, in this case, both the absence of it is both the cause of and solution to the problem. Yeah. So it's kind of like if well, you had added them, you wouldn't have had that problem. But if you had added them and got that problem, you wouldn't have been able to get rid of that problem in right. some cases yeah i think a, a, a lot of the issue for us too is that we're canning a lot of the piquette now and you have to be ah. super careful with uh with sulfite levels for things going into can both because yeah. it's a more reductive environment but also because the can linings can have uh reactions with copper and and sulfites and so they, they right. kind of force you to keep those limited um but what we've what we've done is we've we've adjusted our process over the years um uh there's like a an old treatise on agriculture um by rosier from like uh the late 18th century or i guess when was it yeah 18th century in france and uh he has pages and pages about piquette production and and kind of breaks it down and one of the things they do is they add the water a little bit at a time so you don't overwhelm the must and we've started doing that because that actually keeps the ph a little bit lower for the first part of the process um so mm. rather than adding all of our water at once now we're basically adding it um just to under the surface of the must um we're doing it in a, uh, a sealed environment as much as we can. So if we've got uh, variable capacity tanks, uh, we'll, we'll do our PCAT macerations in those with the, the lids on so that it pushes enough CO2 to blanket itself. Um, nice. And then, yeah, we're just adding the water a little bit every day until we press it. Um, and then, uh, you know, just kind of figuring out where to add that press wine back in. We used to do it at bottling, but now we're doing it um, usually right after pressing. So again, we get that pH and alcohol bump for the, the bulk aging process. Um, all of those things are helping us make a little bit of a cleaner, more fruit focused piquette, um, than we were in the earlier years where we kind of embraced the funk, but sometimes could not, uh, rein it in. <laughs> so adding the press juice. So you've still got pretty active, uh, living juice at that point if it's straight off the press uh, so i'm sure that helps just get things moving as well although i'm sure the skins have plenty of everything on it as well the must is full of full of all that as well yeah um what were those ratios again what were, what were the so we I mean, had wanna... we had about 15 percent of uh, of actual wine back in and um, you know yeah. i say it's press juice our press isn't super um efficient so we we don't really get hard press fractions off of it uh, and, you know, for someone worried about yields, that's could be problematic. But since we're piquetting everything anyway, we don't worry about it. We just, you know, we press until right. it slows down and then we cut it off. And then all of that goes into the to the uh, the piquette macerations. It, Got it. And what, add a little like, bit less wine. Back. What kind of press are you using? Uh, it's a it's a 90 gallon uh, basket press uh, with a water bladder in the center. Um, OK, so you're not cranking a handle it's no it's, it's yeah you, it's you turn it on water okay. pressure yeah and that's another it. it's another thing that we were you know um concerned about environmentally is like water usage if we're filling up 
a bladder with, you know, I guess it probably takes about 60 to 70 gallons of water for each press load. So after, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of seasons, I finally built a, a pump recirculator so I could pump the water into and back out of it. Um, doesn't always work great. So sometimes we're still using a little extra water. But we're also on a well here. So I, I kind of think that any any fresh water that goes into our grass next to the um, barn probably just goes right back into our aquifer. Yeah, I, I, I love that you in New York where it rained, you know, five out of seven days all summer are concerned about water. And, uh, I, you know, I, I hope, I wish that I could say that I've heard that much concern from Californians. Um, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, I don't think you have to worry so much, but yeah, in no, general, it's just, that attitude is fantastic. Right. Just in general, you want to, you want to keep a kind of an eye on everything that could affect what you're, what you're doing to your local environment and community. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well said. I completely agree. Well, you know, I, I, we started off offline uh, talking about what your day was like today, and that was kind of a nice entree. Do you want to sort of talk about what's happening in your winery right now? Sure, and that yeah. That can lead back to Piquet a little bit. It yeah, like. I mean, our our uh, our harvest season is quite extended compared to the West Coast. Um, we we'll start a little bit later. We don't start pulling fruit in until uh, usually mid September. Um, Sometimes the second week, sometimes the third week in September. But then we've luckily this year, it wasn't one of those everything at once years. So we kind of were able to slowly um, take in two to four tons at a time. Uh, But we still have some macerations going. We've got um, our two red vinifera macerations, Gamay and Cab Franc, um, that are still out there. Uh, So I'm punching those down every day just usually once a day sometimes twice if it's warmer because we don't have any temperature control and they're actually essentially outside right now um so i will you know keep an eye on those um they've been fermenting very slowly because it was cold here for a week straight um but we also have to time it because uh apples and cider start around this time they're a little late this year we'll start them next week and i have to make sure that i time the press of the last red piquette press so that i have the cider ready to go right on it because we we can't really leave any pomace dry for an extended period um are you if i if i interject for a minute are you a later apple harvest than further north of you i mean it seems like you guys are even uh, later than you know i follow like eve cidery and we're you know. not but again apples are i mean there are so many varieties that right at, so at, variety know, dependent yeah, yeah tiedemann's red and early max will come in september when every when all the grapes start and then other stuff you know the the interesting thing with apples is you don't have to process them as soon as you harvest them um, and most people actually like to sweat their apples for a month or more right. um, to increase the sugars and get the flavors going a little bit better so yeah. a lot of it is just that, you know, um, bins of apples will come in and sit around and then we, we get to them when we get to them. Or, you know, we have some friends with better uh, gr- grinders and presses for apples than we have. So we have them actually processing some fruit for us. Got it. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll um, we can wait on that stuff, uh, which is great. Um, but, yeah, we're 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 expecting, you know, the first bit of that the apple harvest that we're using this year anyway to be. Um, so we'll get that right. stuff so, on the skins. And, and the timing of that, sorry, I, I did interrupt you. I'll get you back on track. But the uh, the timing of that is because what you do in terms of the, the, the blending of your grape and apple 
musts right. and yeah, things. Yeah, the, the Kofor mints. Yeah, we always um, we've been making this uh, sweetheart, um, which is just our you know it's called a uh, grape and apple wine according to the TTB, but essentially it's just fresh cider on grape skins, and the grape skins have been used twice: once for the wine and once for piquet already. And so they've got a nice kind of colony of lactic acid bacteria in addition to the native yeast. And so we're using that as a kind of uh, both an inoculant for the, the cider um, in addition to whatever native yeasts are in the cider and on the apples themselves, and also to add a little bit of color and structure from the, the red skins. Got it. And, now, do you want that, uh, the lactic acid? I mean, is as I've understood it, and I, I'm, I probably misunderstand it, I, I hear, you know, in cider making, you're trying to, you don't really want MLF to happen. Is that the uh, case here? That, is that, that is true, um, but it's, I would say it's true also in the same way that you don't want it for Riesling or any other number of whites that we make right. and embrace uh, malolactic fermentation. So every time I pour a Riesling at a tasting, I have to explain, like, you're going to say this tastes <laughs> like Chardonnay, and that's because it's gone through malolactic fermentation, and there's nothing we can do about that. Everything does that we make. Um, and Got uh, it. So your ciders must be pretty distinctive then. Um, it's, it, it's, in some cases, uh, you know, more so than others, um, like the fall cider that we put out, which spends a year in um, a combination of neutral oak and chestnut barrels, that definitely gets a much more uh, rounded kind of edge. Um, sometimes there's a, a an almost like bubblegum thing that happens to the, the sweetness that oh, with, well. with, without enough, um, uh, you know, tartaric or citric or other acids to back it up can be a little bit flat, I guess, flabby on the palate. Um, but in our case, I think it works with this particular blend, Stabinet and Rhode Island Greening Stabinet. Um, it's bittersweet. It's got a lot of that kind of uh, butterscotch, but like dark texture also behind it. And then nice. the greening has enough uh, acid to kind of keep it interesting. Um, but for the most Got part, it. we're using Northern Spy as our base for our sweetheart and our other uh, ciders that we do for the spring releases. And those are just like acid bombs. So there's always enough acid there to, to keep it interesting, even at post mallow. Um, and then all, the it. pH also is much higher than the piquette fermentation. So it, to some degree, it will arrest those lactic acid bacterial colonies because they're not as comfortable at, you know, three, one, three, two, as they are at three, five and above. Gotcha. And are you with these ciders? Are they all sparkling? Uh, yeah, nice we've stuff? done, um, we've done one still cider in the past. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to sell cider. Um, and it's even harder to sell still cider, uh, but if, <laughs> if we do think that it makes sense uh, to be still, we will bottle it that way and just, you know, suck it up and try to force people to, to, to buy it. That, the, the can cider that we just did for the fall, that Dabinet and Greening, we actually carbonated much less this year. It's like one and a half um, volumes uh, rather than closer to three, which we do for most of the other stuff. Because uh, it just it has it, texture and structure and doesn't need it as much. It's lightly it. carbonated, but almost, you know, perlant instead so, of petalant. What are you doing for canned carbonation? Are we, you in uh, can fermenting? Yeah, exactly. We do the same thing wow, that we do okay. for the bottles where um, Got it. the day before, usually the night before canning, sometimes the morning of, depending on how much uh, volume there is to do, we will rack everything uh, to a new tank on top of the tirage, which again is local wildflower honey. Um, 
we're still buying the honey from other producers because we don't have nearly enough ourselves. Uh, right. Maybe someday we'll do at least one or two cuvées with our own honey. Um, Are you diluting that? Like cooking we, it? We don't. With we water? don't cook it because we try. It's it's actually one of our um, cheats for the refermentation. Is especially if things have been aging for a year um, and we're not mm. sure if there's a lot of active yeast left in there we will um, keep the honey below 95 degrees so that any uh, yeast, native yeast trapped in the honey will actually help the refirm start. So we basically nice. mix it with warm water up to about 90 degrees, about 50-50 by volume. Um, so, it. so it's like uh, 12 kilograms of honey in a 1,000 liter tank and then 12, you know, a couple liters of warm water in that to wet it down. Then we put that in the tank and then we rack on top of that so that it kind of stirs up and blends as it goes. And then I have to right. dri drive it two hours on the back of a truck to get to the canner. So it mixes up pretty well on the drive too. This is amazing. This is very cool. Um, did I interrupt you? Were you finished talking about uh, canning? Okay. I, I think, think I think so. That was yeah, it. yeah. Yeah. Just the, just the okay. honey tirage. That... So you, you are using chestnut barrels. Is that, um, um, where are you getting those from? Um, I, I bought two chestnut barrels from uh, uh, one of our barrel brokers. We, we have a, a New York barrel guy and a California barrel guy um, that we use for buying mostly neutral French oak barrels. Uh, for the most part, we'll buy four plus year used barrels. Um, but uh -huh. one year I wanted to play with chestnut barrels for cider. And so I bought uh -huh. a couple new chestnut barrels. Um, it's one uh -huh. of those things where I was like, Oh, we just sold a vintage. I got a little money. Let me spend, you know, 800, 900 <laughs> bucks, whatever on a couple barrels. Well, 900 each, and I guess. Where, do you know where the, the chestnut was grown? Is it uh, Spanish? It, it's, it's French also. Um, it's also it, French? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I forget the name of uh, the producer. It's, uh, it's a, ton, a tonel of Southern. Um, okay. But yeah, it was a, that was just a thing that I had read that... Um, cider in chestnut was kind of a, a an old school um american thing to do and i wanted to try it and then actually that year we we couldn't get as many apples as we wanted so i ended up only using one of them for cider and then one of them has been uh, a red wine barrel since then for our uh, marquette from that amarici vineyard um so you used marquette in new chestnut how was that uh, it was, it was awesome. Actually chestnut is, it's like, uh, it's got kind of, a, a a spice similar to French oak, but without the sweetness and vanilla. Um, and it, it, oh. and it does add the texture. Um, it's a little uh, more tannic uh, impression. Yeah. Especially when it was new, it, less so now, right. I actually, I might end up getting another one down the road. Um, because essentially that was one new barrel out of, I think we had six barrels of Marquette that year. Um, so it was still only a small percentage of the total, um, the total blend, uh, and then slowly three years now with neutral chestnut at this point. Nice. Yeah. But yeah, then, no, yeah. I, I, I'm go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say then the, the other one is we use for that, uh, that fall cider, the Dabinet and how was that reading blend? And that's, did I, you have a preference? Uh, I, I like it for both actually, which is, you know, why Great. I'm th thinking about maybe getting a few new ones again to put into the rotation. I didn't know you were doing that, but I'm uh, like, I'm very, I, I'm sure you're hyper aware of the chestnut blight that killed all of the American chestnut. And yeah, so you know, we have, we have some American chestnuts planted back in the orchard that we're fantastic. trying to keep alive fantastic. and use for the, uh, the uh, endosperm collection for the American chestnut society. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I have a, I have a good friend and 
Pennsylvania who's doing that where I'm from. And, uh, you know, he's already got some, you know, nuts. He grew some nuts this year. Um, very exciting. And I, you know, we're, we actually like to draw attention to that. We, we want to ultimately try to piece together a barrel or, you know, some toasted chestnut from fallen, uh, you know, the ones that grow back from the the stumps that are dead of the old trees, but you know, they keep putting out new shoots and they'll last for maybe five, 10 years. So we're, we're, uh, you know, he's collecting them and sending us little cuttings so that we can sort of toast them ourselves and maybe add them as like chestnut cubes to some little trial things as well, just to give a, give a, a little attention to what's happening with that but amazing that's yeah. very exciting yeah i do yeah. i do i've often thought like what you know if <laughs> with our changing and expanding idea of terroir um why aren't we using more local and native uh fermentation vessels <laughs> so yeah i'm like you know i don't i was i was like yep. starting with french oak and it's like it's also a lot easier to buy them cheap and used so uh early on it wasn't really a, an option for us to find like local american stuff um, but there is a uh cooperage up in the adirondacks that does some really cool stuff um and i bet they would be down with finding some fallen local trees and working with them so maybe down the road yeah that's in the cards That's for us. Fantastic. Yeah, I fully support that. And for anyone who is listening that isn't aware about that blight, it, essentially the entire eastern coast of the United States and North America, it was probably the if one of, if not the most populous tree. It was huge. It supplied, you know, entire economies, local economies with food, with wood, you know, with tools. They called it a cradle of the grave thing. Cause, you know, your, your cradles would be built out of it, your coffins would be built out of it, your homes would be built out of it. And then uh, with globalization, just like phylloxera, we took phylloxera to Europe and just decimated the European vinifera vines. Uh, Chinese chestnuts brought to North America had a blight that our local chestnuts weren't uh, resistant to and basically killed every, you know, like millions and millions of trees. Uh, And then what the blight didn't kill, the government programs to try to stop the blight (laughs) killed and uh, there are no more American chestnut trees other than these sort of holdouts and yeah. the, and the people that are now you know planting from seed trying to get a new you know DNA mutation that is resistant in the American chestnut. Yeah, um, yeah, I th- and I think the hope is they're trying to they're trying to find something that's like ninety nine percent American genetics with just the right as as little transferred as possible from from any of the other uh, gene donors other than the um, and they do have uh, the American chestnut foundation federation i forget acf whatever they are um they do have uh seedlings of the resistant trees that they're you know sending out to people but it's a pretty long wait um so we're currently just like i said growing the non-resistant american trees that are not going to make it and we'll keep them alive as long as we can and then hopefully take some collections from them into the federation for uh crossing down the road yeah it's really exciting that's cool um i had no idea you're doing that but congrats that's that's very cool um I also want to, you know, I'd be respectful of your time, but before we before we wrap this up, uh, you know, you had some great news recently. You were included in a pretty stellar lineup of producers who are making wine for Patagonia, uh, yeah. who just started their own natural wine selection, which is really exciting. Well done with that. Congratulations on that. You're Thank doing you, yeah. your Marquette. Uh, you're doing yep. a Marquette for them. Um, yeah. Um, you want to talk about that Marquette? What, what, 
what how that's made, where that comes from? Yeah, so that's um, that's the the Marquette we've talked about a couple times. It's up in Valley Falls, uh, New York, where the, where the vineyard is. It was twenty years of like almost organic production, and then uh, as of twenty eighteen, working with the old owner, we moved them to full organic um, on their spray cycle. But already there was no no uh, uh, herbicide or pesticides ever used there. Um, and yeah, we, that's one uh, of the great things about Marquette, right? It's, it, I mean, it's one of the most successful hybrids that have come out of Minnesota and it's cold resistant. It's te- pest resistant. It's mildew resistant, uh, you know, all of the, not, yeah. yeah, like a fungal resistant. And it makes decent um, wine. <laughs> it makes right. Decent wine. It's, I yeah. think some Pinot parentage in there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's, I mean, that's interestingly, that's, I think, um, Kind of a shift in the in the uh, programs both at Cornell and in Minnesota, and also the parallel work going on in Europe. Uh, it's interesting that it's total parallel processes without any sharing because you can't really send that stuff back and forth without twenty years worth of paperwork. Um, right. But uh, essentially, they're focusing now not on only making something that will survive in this climate, but that will thrive uh, by also having those disease resistant qualities. Um, So the last 10 to 15 years of releases from both Cornell's labs and University of Minnesota are are proving to be much more disease resistant and easy to grow for those reasons. Um, So yeah, we, you know, we were able to help get those guys to full organic uh, growing. And then the new family that bought it, they're not growers or uh, winemakers so they just basically do the spraying and pruning for us and then we go up and harvest everything with them in the fall um and yeah um, vanya and uh brian who kind of shepherded this project for patagonia um reached out and brian came here and tasted through a bunch of brian mcclintic brian mcclintic yep and vanya filipovic um right and yeah he tasted her own uh yeah her own thing from the finger lakes right uh she does uh, Vin Damajan imports in uh, okay. Quebec, and uh, she does the oh, beverage program for Joe Beef and those restaurants. Um, okay. And so, yeah, he, he came and tasted through everything, and we talked and, you know, told him about that farm and how it's been great for us. And he said, why don't, why don't we try? Because it was actually in the middle of the 19 vintage, and he had us hold back two barrels from 19 and do a kind of Solera blend with two barrels from uh, 2020 um, and do a multi-vintage blend because both of those uh, year, years were a little hard, the 2020 with, uh, with some drought in the middle and the 2019. Um, just in general, there was a lot of mildew pressure up there. So he's like, yeah, why don't you blend them and make a multi-vintage blend? That way it's not also taking your whole harvest for the year um can blend Mm. the two and so yeah we kept we kept two of the barrels from 19 blended them from 20 um and then yeah we're able to do a you know organically grown zero zero wine for them fit right into their ideas and their ethos and yeah i didn't actually know who any of the other wineries were until uh, (laughs) we were already like well into it i think we'd actually already sent them the wine like a year after the process started and I was like, oh, yeah, who, who else are you doing this with? And the list was just like, oh, really? And us? Okay. All right. <laughs> Chateau de Peru, uh, yeah. Colonel Eisen, yeah. Meinklang. Yeah. yeah, all the heavy hitters. Uh, that's really well done. I mean, congratulations. That's a, that is like an honor as well as just a really cool accomplishment. Yeah, it was super um, fun. And I noticed it's a it's pretty low alcohol. I, I, I've heard that Marquette is pretty tart unless you get it pretty ripe. How, how is that? 
So uh, it, it is, and it's, you know, it's this year actually is the first year that we got uh, some Marquette in uh, about a month later than we harvest everything else. Um, uh-huh. But I don't, I don't know. There's, there's just something about not pushing the, um, the bricks past 21 that I think just works for us in our winemaking style. Um, in general, you know, we do a semi-carbonic maceration, uh, five days up front, um, before we foot tread it, but then we do a two week cold cluster maceration. And we've done that for almost all of our, uh, reds, not the carbonic, but the whole cluster, or at least 50, you know, 30 to 50% whole cluster stem inclusion. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, those, those stems are going to drop the pH of that must during the maceration, um, and I think that's a really good way to temper the high acid we get in our cooler climate. Uh, and yeah, I, I won't say that not a lot of people were doing that, but I feel like the prevailing wisdom was that, oh, unless your stems are super ripe, you can't put them in or you're going to get greenness. And we've never, never had that problem. Um, we, and, and the stems will lignify before they even turn brown. I just, you know, when we're, when we're checking for harvest, besides testing TA, pH, and bricks, I'm just chewing on stems and seeds and skins to see where the flavors are at. And I, you know, I think that the phenolic ripeness and the sugar ripeness curves are not directly overlapping. And especially in a region that's further north like ours, where you've got longer, hotter days in the middle of the summer, um, you're phenolic ripeness is going to happen before your sugar ripeness. Um, and so if you've got the flavors that you want, I don't see any need to push the sugars um, and let things hang just to let them hang. I think once the flavors are there, um, you can make a balanced wine. And so we, we tend to harvest a little bit earlier than most people might and then use those you know, tricks to kind of give the wine a little bit more balance. Nice. Uh, it, I'm, I'm guessing it still has a good bit of acidity. Yeah, still for sure. Fresh. Yeah. 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 For, for, our, <laughs> for our harvesting, whenever I'm working with a new grower, I'm like, listen, as long as the TA drops below 10, uh, we're, we're good. <laughs> and they're always like, are you sure you want this now? Um, but yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That's great. And and uh, you have a kind of interesting. What's your production? Because I, I, what I was about to say is you have an interesting way of uh, selling wine, which is you're not really selling it directly. You you have to join your list, and then you do a release a couple times a year. Yeah, um, um, that's just because we don't have any employees, and I don't have the time to be packing orders year round. Um, right. So doing our fall release during harvest is never ideal, but that's what always happens. Um, but basically, right. <laughs> the the list is just a way for us to say, okay, we made this much wine twice a year. We package it and sell half of whatever the vintage was, and you know, we we open it up for a week. It's there's not really an allocation system with the, the vendor that we're using for shipping, so it's just first come first serve. We just limit the number of bottles per person. We do give pre anyone who's bought previously gets a day earlier to buy things, so that if anything sells out, at least we're giving precedence to people who've supported us in the past. Um, But that's just a way for us to be like, okay, here's all our direct sales. They're done in a week. We ship them out uh, in a week. We know how much we sold, and then we don't have to be packing or shipping the rest of the year. Then everything else gets put on a pallet and on a truck to our distributors. Um, So it's it's worked for us so far. We've been able to keep about 25% of our sales as we've grown in, in the direct consumer portion, which has you know kept us afloat um 
but yeah, I just, I don't know. We kind of like landed on that and it, it hasn't broken yet. So we're sticking with it and figure out something. Better. I mean, it, it does seem like you, uh, how long have you been at this? How, when did you start Wild Art? So 2016 was our first vintage. So this, okay. this is got our it. sixth vintage, I guess. Got it. So, and it seems like you've got some decent traction. I mean, you have good, good followers, followership and, and everything like that. It, was there a key to getting there? Uh, or did you, I mean, were you out of the gate? Did you just have a lot of friends and support? Um, right away yeah we were definitely lucky to have those uh ties to the restaurant world in the city to get those placements which obviously is you know that's the balancing act for directing consumer i think is to get in front of the people who want to be your consumers and so that's why we'll always do wholesale uh to some degree to make sure that we're in the you know wine shops and wine bars and restaurants where we want people to find us um Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I, I, on top of that, just, you know, the, the press we got from from the Piquette thing just helped kind of um, bring people uh, to us. And then, you know, they find out, obviously, we make other wines and ciders on top of that. Um, so, I, you know, that's the I'll always be thankful for for Piquette and and the attention it's brought us for sure. Um, and then, yeah, it's just, you know, we we don't have marketing or PR department. So it's just, you know, when we can remember to post something on social media and get some engagement there and and we you know we try to be uh accessible you know when people message us on instagram or you know call us and we answer the phone and we try to answer all the pms we can it's during harvest season (laughs) i apologize it sometimes takes a little longer but (laughs) well um i mean that's a probably a good place to ask you you know where where should people find you where should they what are what are your uh Connections uh, online. So, so yeah, wildarkfarm.com, uh, at wildarkfarm on Instagram or Twitter. Um, I'm not really very active on the company Twitter. Um, but yeah, Instagram yeah. is the best way to, to see what we're up to. We post most updates there. And then, yeah, on the mailing list, uh, which you can get to from the website or linked from Instagram, that's where we send out our twice yearly release mailings. And then we do some specialty things once in a while. We'll do a fundraiser uh, again pretty soon. And we're going to do uh, a holiday market, but that will be for on-farm pickup only. We're going to start selling some of the spirits and vermouth that we've made. Um, and we can't ship spirits. So unfortunately, you've got to be close and come to us to get those. Are you buying uh, pre-distilled spirits or using your own uh, stuff so to So for, for some of the Nocino that we've made in the past, we've got some uh, organic corn-based neutral grain spirits from our friends at Matchbook Distilling out on Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also did... Uh, uh, distill some stuff with our friends at never sink so we had a punch in of wine that did not go where we wanted it to um and we brought it to our friends at never sink to do the first pass and then we took the low wines back here and then we distilled that um a second time into some grape brandy which we used for the vermouth and then we also made a small batch of arak this year which is something i've wanted to do since we started so are you now a licensed distillery as yeah, well? Yeah, we have a DSP license on top of our farm Fantastic. winery license. Yeah, so we can... Well, that that gives you some options. Yeah. I, I feel like that's just the way to go. Uh, Unfortunately, that's, that's our s- still is 100 liters, so I don't really have the room to do anything <laughs> at scale. Um, it was great with just taking the, you know, we took 100 liters of the low wines from that first distillation and, and did those two runs uh, um, to get the to get the Arak and the... Um, great brandy but i think we're gonna have to invest in a real larger still but we also have to get a bigger facility you know yeah 
we're we're pretty yeah, much hemmed in by space and and capacity here right now. Right. Was there an existing barn or something on? Yeah, on just a little pole barn. Um, we have partially insulated it and put a new crush pad on since we moved in, but it's still it's like <laughs> it's twenty by fifty with a ten by twenty foot crush pad. It's much small, too small for what yeah. we're trying to do now. What is your production? I, I asked that if you're willing to share. Yeah, so uh, we made about 2,000 cases last year, um, but okay. of That's that, great. about half is Piquette and Cider. Um, so we only processed, I think, 18 tons of, of grapes, and then like it would be like eight bins of apples. And this year, we're doing a little bit more Piquette, um, but about the same on the wine side. I think we did 21 tons of grapes. Got it. Well, this has been uh, incredibly rich with information, and we just blew through some of these details. Uh, that I, I mean, thank you so much for sharing all this. I think this is something that uh, somebody will have to listen to a couple times to get all the nuggets out of. There's so much good stuff, just depending on what your interests are. If you're interested in Piquette, if you're interested in cider, if you're interested in wine, especially uh, in the New York East Coast area, juicy juicy stuff thanks so much for sharing this todd it's been really uh really informative and super interesting conversation for me i hope everyone listening as well my pleasure thank you for having me again 